Welcome again to the Kind Mess Podcast. We are joined here today by uh, Claire Dunn, who is an author and an activist and campaigner or former activist and campaigner for the Wilderness Society. She also is a mentor and therapist exploring rewilding and embodiment practices. And she's the author of My Year Without Matches, an awesome book. And uh, and has just authored another book, if I'm right, the called Rewilding the Urban Soul. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thanks very much, Chad. Thanks for having me on. Claire, I became familiar with your work a, a while ago, so it was lovely to sort of have this connection and now get to actually wax lyrical. I was going to say live, but digitally. I was just exploring your work as I was taking, sitting next to my daughter, watching my other, my, my other child, my son, have his, finish his swimming lessons. And uh, my, my daughter said, could you please ask Claire if, A, I can come on one of those trips, and <laughs> B, does she have any specific pets? Oh, pets. Um, the first one's easy. Yes, I absolutely love hanging out with kids in the bush, teaching them a thing or two. Um, I don't have pets. I don't have pets. My partner has a cat and so I just make the most of it when I'm over at his place and just, like, make the cat sit on my lap. Um, but my, <laughs> life is, my life is a bit peripatetic. I'm kind of here, there and everywhere and it doesn't lend mm-hmm. itself to pets. I have lots of um, daddy long leg spiders that live in my room, though. Oh. <laughs> oh, I love them. Well, look, I... Promised my 11-year-old I would lead with that question, Claire. There are so many parallels between the work that you do and the discussions and the pontifications that we have on this podcast. We are really passionate and curious about mindfulness, present moment awareness, self-regard, compassion, obviously. What do you see as some of the crossovers with the, the wonderful work that you do? And the work that you do, the crossovers between our our works. Absolutely. Yeah, great question. I mean, I don't know a huge amount about what you do, but I know know that it's around um, cultivating kindness and compassion um, Mm. primarily. And, well, I think my work crosses over in a a number of ways. Um, The first way that comes to me is the, the, the arm of my work that's around nature connection. Um, mm. which is really about falling in love with the earth. Like that's the kind of subtext. Even though I'll use different modalities, sometimes it might be learning to make fire without matches or sometimes it might be, you know, being blindfolded and walking up the creek. Really it's it's all about opening us up to a, a deep love for our planet. Um, and from that love comes empathy. Um, and from mm. that empathy comes compassion and kindness for all living beings. So our circle of care extends beyond, certainly beyond self, but also just beyond family 
and beyond the human community and extends to the more than human community. Um, so, mm. you know, when, when someone feels connected, like when you feel connected, you know, just to self, to earth, to community, to other, like when there's those three connections that are really humming along, then there's just like the natural state is kindness, is compassion. Um, because we're we're full, we're full of connection, and that's that's the drug of kindness, really. When we're connected, mm. we naturally feel uh, like a sense of abundance, a sense of kind of love overflows from that place of connection. And I've experienced both states, and I still continue to experience periods of connection and periods of disconnection. And when I'm feeling disconnected, mm. there's a kind of scarcity. There's a kind of a I don't have much to share here because I'm still trying to get my basic connection needs met. Mm. But when I'm mm. feeling the, the connection to self, earth and other, then I, I just want to give, you know, it's just like this well of love just wants to kind of pour out of me. Um, mm. So that's, that's my, initial, my initial thoughts about the crossovers. And, and it just feels like such a, yeah, such an obvious crossover. Another like, just example of something recently, I'm running this um, 12-month uh, leadership training and we met together on Friday and part of what we did was a group kind of grief ceremony, um, really inviting in <clears throat> feelings, you know, anger, fear, sadness, emptiness, any feelings that we have around what's happening in the world. Um, and there was you know, 30 of us sitting in a circle for about an hour and a half just really witnessing each other in our deepest kind of feelings for the planet or sometimes it's personal pain, it's all connected. And what came out of that, and, and I've witnessed it, you know, dozens of times, is not kind of falling into a pit of despair, um, but it's actually what arises from that group um, experience of, of the truth of our times, our our emotional truth of meeting these times, was just this overflowing love for the earth, overflowing compassion for self, for other, for the world, like a, and a sense of kind of empowerment, a sense of kind of like, oh, we're all in this together. We can actually move forward together now. We've actually, you know, recognized and acknowledged and experienced the truth of what what our times brings up in us. Uh, so that was just a really fresh for me, that experience. I was, I was listening to a podcast earlier that you were on and you were talking about how um, one of the first things you notice with some of these people that you've taken on, say, like wilderness sort of retreats or rewilding kind of retreats or I think there was a group you were working with um, like rewilding in the urban environment, like uh, like what your books are along the lines of. And you talked about as people start to rekindle this connection with wildness and with like the tangible kind of living ecology that we exist in, there sometimes uh, this sense of longing comes up in people mm. and that really resonated with me. Whenever I've had time where I've really sort of spent time in wildness, in, in sort of natural environments, in um, living spaces or gone camping or anything like that, 
um, there's a sense of joy at it all and, and, and a sense of connection, but there's also this sense of longing that for me feels almost like a, a grief. And I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on sort of that idea of like perhaps like ecological grief or that, that disconnect we have from a living kind of environment that our modern life sometimes um, kind of creates in a way. Great question. I the currency of longing is one of my um, something I'm tracking. I've, I've, it's really fascinating, and it's very mm. powerful. Um, and it can be also really um, confronting. My experience with guiding people through deep nature connection journeys, not just kind of one-off retreats, but like longer kind of immersions but it can also happen in, in shorter retreats is, again, coming back to that, um, the technologies of connection, which is really what I feel like I'm employing in my work is technologies of connection. They can be village building technologies, nature connection technologies, self-connection or like ceremonial rites of passage technologies are all around connection. When people start like plugging into those technologies and like feeling kind of like an electricity enters the body, enters the system, this kind of feeling of like charged up with, with connection. Um, and mm. it's, it's our natural state. Like if we grew up in earth-based cultures, in traditional cultures, that would be our everyday experience of life really is just, you know, uh, connection is a way of life. Um, mm. And we haven't had that. We've, we, we're you know, we're part of like historic trauma, what we're experiencing, the, the level of disconnection that we experience is part of kind of like historic trauma that we all feel. So um, when people start like getting f- filled up with this electricity of connection, what tends to happen is that the longing also switches on because mm. our systems know what our kind of birthright is. They know what thriving is. They know what like our systems expect to be born into a culture of connection and we're not. So when we start giving people a taste of what it could be like to live in a culture of connection, all the longing turns on and it can be really Mm. intense and it can feel a bit like, Mm. whoa, I've just been having this amazing time in nature with these awesome people and what's going on here. I'm just kind of like full of grief now. And it's the grief of, of knowing what you've been missing. And the grief of knowing mm. what we're all missing and the grief of knowing that tomorrow you've got to go back to your kind of apartment in the city and your full-time job or whatever it is mm. and knowing that suddenly like that feels very unnatural and very unhealthy but the barriers to living a life of connection are really huge, like financial and cultural and all of it. So, But that longing can also really be a very powerful catalyst for mm. making change, you know, for like that longing is like a thread and on the end of that thread is a life of connection and a life of vision and healing and the longing can either shut people down or the longing mm. can, can be something that wakes them up. Like, hang on, this is, this is an intelligence of the system here that's saying I want more of this. Mm. So mm. I'm all the longing. <laughs> bring, on the, bring on the longing. 
It's really interesting. There's a, there's a point that I want to meander towards, Claire, and so much of what you're saying resonates with with myself in terms of I tell a lot of my students who I'm teaching mindfulness to that it's it's deeply biologically painful to be thrust into a situation where we're not human beings anymore, we're human doings. And I kind of think of some of the, the Buddhist stories and the Taoist stories of the heart in exile you mentioned before, you mentioned that when you return to, to country, that you experience a sense of hope. And I, I, I want to hear more about that because I know at the moment, the tricky bit sometimes with a compassion practice and a mindfulness practice is sometimes you're kind of sitting there going, Jesus wept, there is an island the size of Texas made of plastic floating in the ocean. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm really struggling to be with that. I know personally I've had times when, yeah, there's there's a mourning and a, and a rage, if I don't even know if that's the right word, but you're the first person that I've heard recently sort of talk about and refer specifically to this idea of hope. Mm. I'm really interested in that. Mm. Yeah, it's such a such an interesting word and, and a lot of people, you know, shy away from it at the moment because there's so many reasons not to have hope. And I, I really kind of, I like the reframing of the word hope that my, one of my mentors, Joanna Macy, uh, uses, and she talks of active hope, which is not uh, wishful thinking, you know, mm. which it's not just like, oh, I really hope that the world is a better place someday. You know, like active hope is the hope that is generated simply by taking the steps towards a life-affirming culture. Hope is literally I get up in the morning and I know what my purpose is. It's around working towards a life-affirming culture, working towards healing, working towards reconnection. So that in itself is hopeful. The fact mm. that we get up and do what we do um, towards a better future, that's hope. And it's also made more resilient. That hope is made more resilient by those deep connections with nature, with the more than human world, um, with each other, with community, like the sense of we're in it together and um, noticing, like having the kind of um, tracking for change, not tracking for bad news, but tracking for change and that mm. being a lens to kind of really see the bigger picture of our actions. And that is inherently hopeful. Like it's, it's inherently hopeful for me, just the, the fact that I'm motivated each day to get up and, and take action on behalf of the earth to mm. help reconnection happen. It's, and I, it, the, like, it's not hopeful in terms of, oh, I need to see where my actions lead to. I need to see how many people I've reconnected or what, you know, what change they've made in their lives or if they're still throwing plastic in the street or whatever. I'll never know. I'll never see the ripples. I'll never see the results of my actions. So I can only really base my hope on, on the integrity of my actions and the integrity of the actions that I see around me. That's inherently hopeful. Mm. So it's kind of, sounds like it's kind of more kinetic than uh, static. Like uh, there's a difference between sort of sitting there and say, gee, I wish, gee, I wish, but you're kind of putting this intention into action, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's, a, it's about action. 
It's definitely yeah. it's it's hope through intentional action. It's it's mm. it's the antithesis of wishful thinking. Mm. Yeah. And I'm going to uh, risk asking two reductive questions. <laughs> when you take people out into country and into actually seeing all of this, one, are they less likely to want to actually continue societally and economically to defecate where they consume? Um, see, Jad, I'm getting better. I wanted to say shit where they eat. But that could be confusing because sometimes when you're camping, you do sort of shit nearby <laughs> where you eat. <laughs> and I guess oh, I've forgotten the second question, so let's just run with that. <laughs> oh, so is the question like the, the pure act of um, helping people reconnect to the more than human world, does that? Well, see, well, sort of seeing it, you're so wonderful. You're taking people out and they're seeing it instead of people sort of sitting at home in block boxes and watching black mirrors all the time they're seeing it and feeling it and i'm guessing that that makes makes people sort of want to connect with an, an intentionality oh and the second part of the question was it, i mean it's sounding like this this a big part of your process is restoring agency reminding people that we're biological pack animals with power potentially so two parts mm. of that sorry sorry yeah. No, no, good. Um, yes, I should have a waiver form on my courses that, that says um, don't blame me if you quit your job because <laughs> a lot of yes. people end up quitting, quitting their day jobs <laughs> because, because really when you, when you start having these experiences of, of like what you could call eco-awakening, mm. what I have called eco-awakening where uh, – the experience is like interconnectedness, but not from an intellectual perspective, but from an embodied perspective. Like you, people ah. have people have these experiences of realizing in their in their blood, in their bones, in their cells that they are one strand in the web of life. Mm-hmm. And once it's moved from the intellectual to the body and the heart, then life will never be the same again. And don't blame me if they quit your job because that. You know, it's suddenly almost impossible to, um, yeah, to do what they used to do in terms of like earth harming actions or business as usual. You know, build, mm. building up security and and taking care of oneself um, primarily is just suddenly just there's just a much bigger picture. There's a much bigger sense of security. You know, the security comes from the resilience of being in a web, not from kind of shoring up one's you know, the box. Um, mm. I can't remember the second part of your question. Oh, agency. Um, you kind of just answered it, yeah. I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. It's like I am, an, I am an active participant in this web of life. Everything I do has repercussions, um, including positive and negative. And so the, the natural urge to engage in life-affirming actions you know, it's it's not a top-down kind of approach. It's like it just wells up as a as a natural extension of their experience of being connected. And what a beautiful gift, Claire, to share or offer people the the opportunity to. In mindfulness, we call it sort of neck down, trying to get neck down. So to get out of get out yeah. of the head and into the into the body. What what a what a wonderful gift. 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely part of your thinking game. I'm really curious, Claire, actually, on on that kind of note, this, um, you know, people leaving their jobs and stuff. In in the start of your book, you talk about how in your previous role as sort of an activist and campaigner with the Wilderness Society, you know, sort of a desk job, and there was a great line where you said, I didn't feel passionate anymore, I just felt employed. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of people can resonate with that even if they're following their passion if they're if they, they are in a career that's sort of in alignment with their values you can still sometimes feel like you're on this treadmill and i think for a lot of people mm. it is because we're divorced from our you know as you put it birthright of of being um animals living within the world and not sort of in domestic kind of boxes and it's, in terms of your activism is that how that's kind of evolved that you've moved from you know the the traditional form of activism of lobbying and and you know contacting papers and you know turning up on news shows talking about logging in catchment areas or whatever and actually have you sort of found perhaps this sort of rewilding work that you're doing is engaging people in a much more um a way that perhaps has exponential flow on effects is that does that make sense yeah, it does. It's it's not that I don't believe in the value of that kind of traditional activism. I think I think it's all needed at this time in, on mm. Earth, and I really um, deeply respect the people that are fighting for um, justice in the environmental movement right now. Um, but for me, at the time, it became really clear that what I was fighting for, um, I needed to dig down to the root cause of the problem which was our inherent or our cultural disconnection from the earth, Um, this, you know, this like illusion of separation between us and our life support systems and that, that, that vast distance between them. And it just became so obvious to me that I needed to address that firstly in myself. Um, And even though I'd kind of already left the, um, you know, the mainstream culture and, and turned into a kind of, Tree hugging hippie, um, I actually hadn't I hadn't left the paradigm of of kind of fighting and and you know just that kind of political wrangling. Um, mm. wasn't it It wasn't addressing for me the deeper change that I felt was really needed. And um, so when I embarked on the kind of path of like rewilding and deep nature connection skills and earth skills and you know all the wilderness survival skills, it was just a pure like intuitive pull to that this was this was a bridge um, that I really needed. I hadn't even heard of the word rewilding. And so I came out of that whole like year in the woods experience and discovered this word rewilding, which which suddenly gave it a framework for what I was doing. It was like it's around, you know, rewilding the human rewilding movement is around um, decolonizing the mind of all these kind of cultural assumptions that we have about what we have to do, what we're how we're meant to be. And it's it's about counteracting over domestication and bringing back this sense of the wild sovereignty of the self. Um, I love yeah. that. And that's that's not that's not restricted to being in the bush or being in the city. It's a kind of way of being and a kind of questioning of everything. Mm. When I was a, a teenager, I saw a show on SBS called Going Tribal, the, yeah. and Ferals, The Call of the Wild, and it was all about 
the you know the ferals phenomena and when Byron Bay kind of really first took off and there was you know dreadlock people on the dole living in teepees and and I was just like oh, that is what I want to do when I <laughs> when I get older and I you know told my parents and I made them watch the documentary and you know they had this a plus student at the time wanting to like <laughs> live in a teepee in the forest of course like the romance of that idea kind of wore off for me and what I found really lovely in your book and really refreshing is that you don't just romanticize all of this stuff that there was this real kind of honest portrayal of like some of it was yucky some of it was there was lots of days where it was almost like our day-to-day life in the city where you're kind of like what should I do today and like this ticking off the to-do list of things you needed to achieve in the forest And 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 coming back again to the real intention, which was just to, to be more. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe expand a bit on that, and also perhaps linking that in with that concept of rewilding for people who aren't sort of familiar with the concept. That doesn't necessarily mean we all have to, mm. you know, live like cavemen and build, you know, make stone tools and yes. stuff. That that there's a way we can do it in a more accessible way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I still fantasize about living in a TP in the in the the lands of Byron, though. So me too, <laughs> totally. I haven't, I haven't given up that dream, even though I'm now living in Melbourne. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, moved to the bush and and suddenly had none of the physical uh, familiarities of, of city life, but I had brought my uh, my city mind with me and um, all the colonized ideas about how how to be a worthy human, you know, what it takes to be, what I, what it takes to be okay to be enough in the world. Um, and it really, that's when I came smack bang against, um, confronted with the extent to which I had bought into our culture's worthiness scale, which is what have I got to show for my day? Um, what have I achieved? Have I, you know, and for me, it was like, what's what's my mastery of basket weaving or fire making or, you know, how leaking is my shelter or how many birds have I ID'd today or how good's my tracking? Like, doesn't really matter what it, you know, it's like it could be stamp collection, but like just that that measuring of our worthiness according to some kind of productivity. And um, it became quite clear to me during the experience that, I mean, I was, I was having a really hard time. Um, purely because of the pressure I was putting on myself, and I didn't have a phone, I didn't have a computer, I didn't have, I didn't have anything that I, I didn't have anything that I nowhere needed to be, nothing I had to do, and yet I was being my own worst boss. Um, and it, it, like, it, I broke, I broke open through that pressure I was putting on myself, the self-critic and the taskmaster, mm. and um, I really needed, like, it was quite a intense experience of breaking out of that model um, and coming to know that my true task that year was was not about um, being the next, you know, Bear grills, but it was actually about <laughs> learning how to just follow my, my instinct, follow my flow um, to, mm. you know, speak in Byron language, um, but really just to, to learn how to follow what, what I wanted to do um, and that to be my compass bearing and to really kind of tune that compass bearing so that I knew that because that's really the quality of wildness and this is what rewilding is all about it's not about um being the best survivalist 
it's it's really about coming back to that quality of wildness being I'm a sovereign animal um, that has you know certain needs to thrive, um, and mm. it and this being has its own knowing of what it needs in any at any time, and it's not beholden to uh, the dominant paradigm assumptions about what we are meant to to kind of how we're meant to show up as a human in Western culture. So rewilding is actually deeply um, questioning all those um, ideas that have come with colonization, that have come with this Western culture and really deeply questioning why do I do that, you know, what's the rut that I'm in, questioning those ruts that we get ourselves, we just assume like this is the way I walk, walk to work every day or this is what I eat for breakfast. This is, you know, this is how much I eat. This is like what I listen to. This all the ruts. Mm. Really questioning, mm. like, what am I missing? Why am I mm. doing that? Um, what's what really serves my sense of like wild freedom and well-being and connectivity? So, kind of like asking that question from the bottom up, like, what connects me and what disconnects me? That's a really easy but f- like powerful question to ask oneself. What connects me? what disconnects me and make those choices around connection. Mm. Um, and that's radical. That's radical. Yeah. Examining your work, agency, restoring choice kept coming up for me, Claire, like shifting us away from a perspective of defining ourselves by what we produce or consume or heavily seeking validation externally, which is just a thing in society. Mm. And again, your stuff is similar to discussions and practices that Jad and I have in terms of trying to prosecute absurdity, like things that things that just because they're habits and we do them, it's look looking to create a landscape of critical insight to go, hang on, that's ab- that's actually absurd. That's not me. That's just mm-hmm. all this stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. But I'm interested. You you mentioned obviously being in the wild for that amount of time was tough and you had to sort of stop that rancid inner critic. Yeah. So I'm really curious, what role did compassion play in that shift? Self-compassion, if any, Claire, what what role did it play? That's such a great question. I feel like I understand the role of self-compassion and the power of self-compassion way more now, 10 years on, than I did then. Um, it, back then it was it was like almost like separating myself from the inner critic um, for the first time, you know, divorcing my inner critic for the first time. And at that point in my development it was more about like pushing it away and exiling it um, and struggle, you know, the, the battle and the struggle. Um, and the moments of breakthrough I had were because I kind of softened. I wouldn't have even used the word self-compassion back ah. then, but it was just this feeling of like, oh, this receptivity, this kind of softening, this just allowing of my experience, the just mm. the allowing of the tears, the allowing of the like, I'm just going to lie by my fire all morning and read Women Who Run With The Wolves, whatever it was. And just that's that like sweetness of just like allowing, you know, it wasn't kind of a, uh, yeah, it wasn't kind of named as self-compassion, but looking back at it, that, that was when the breakthroughs came was, was when I brought that just like 
it's okay that self-talk of like you just you just sit there and do what you want you know you just follow follow your your knowing um but it's it's been more recently i feel like that um that the power of self-compassion towards any experience not exiling any experience that's where it's really been kind of like at greater levels of of awareness of how powerful a practice it is like just even that even today you know I had a session with my therapist and, and he was um you know really encouraging me to lean into quite radical self-compassion of every state that I move through and of course there's still states that I push away and just having that witness and having that kind of that loving witness supporting me to sit in some uncomfortable states and really not push them away and instantaneously there's such a shift in my experience my relationship with myself the sense of possibilities it all the world opens up again when when nothing is exiled and it's of course the irony of like once something is actually like brought in and accepted and really surrendered to not as an obstacle to the spiritual path but as part of the spiritual path then gosh the world changes it's just everything changes it's interesting. So I'm hearing you kind of say that compassion in in some ways enhanced your experience of mindfulness. So mm. compassion allowed you more more readily to be with what was occurring as opposed to giving it the old, uh, you know, AFL stiff arm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just that it's like the, it's like becoming intimate with my experience rather than um, othering it. Um. You know, it's it's I, even though I know it, there's something about having that that loving witness there occasionally to kind of just remind us. Oh, it's so simple. Oh, well, that's all I need to do. Like it's mm. okay to feel this and that, and it's okay to have you know these freakouts and whatever it is. Like I'm a human in human relationships. It's going to happen. Um, radical. And and once again, a recurring theme of this podcast is it, it's stuff that you would say to a friend. Yeah. It's just it's just all of a sudden starting to even notice yourself saying it to yourself and allowing yourself to say it to yourself. Yeah. And it's sometimes so confronting that, you know, like I work one on one with people and what, you know, what I kind of guide them into into their in terms of their own relationship with their different parts, etc. Why is it so much harder to um to turn the lens on myself and to mm. give myself the same guidance? Yeah, that's the that's the fifty thousand dollar question. <laughs> in those moments, I personally, I don't know about you guys, but I personally find that that's when you think of all those old quotes from the wisdom traditions from thousands of years ago. Oh, the obstacles, the path. Oh, yes. oh, you know, yeah. you start to go, oh god, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. all right, yeah. all right. Like what, okay. what's in the way is the way. Oh, that's right, I knew that. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the the problem as well is is that. The, the the inner voice we're hearing is we're, we're the only sort of audience to it and so sometimes you kind of need to either frame it as an external coming in or hear it from someone else and I actually had a lovely moment reading your book I was lying on it like a, a sun lounge in Koh Samui by a pool with my my godson and his mum at a comedy festival 
for five days. We had nothing planned. Nice. But I remember sitting there and as I'm reading the book, I'm like, should I get in the pool and play with my godson or, or should I go get a, a pina colada or maybe I should go explore Coastal Mui. I haven't really seen Coastal Mui before. I've been in other parts of time and I'm sitting there and I'm getting into this like turmoil about like what I should be doing with my day of doing nothing. And and, and yeah. I was, as I was reading, there was a part of the chapter in your book was talking about that kind of like getting my to-do list. Have I listened to enough birds in a day? Have I done yeah. this, you know, fix my shelter? And I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm doing that right now. I can just read a book in the yeah. sun. That is totally okay. I'm so glad that you have <laughs> my chapter just that you're in your moment of need. Yeah, exactly. Unlounge in Kosamui. It's like hard times. <laughs> it's, it's exactly. I was making it a very hard time. I was like, should have been having like this deeply yeah. relaxing moment. Yeah. But, you know, they were Claire's like, work <laughs> got you through that harrowing experience. <laughs> yes, that harrowing experience. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to hear of stories where I, you know, saved someone's life. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sort of curious, Claire, mm-hmm. you're saying, and I think we're all feeling it as well through through present moment awareness practices, through through rewilding. There's a part of us that knows this. I refer to maybe the idea of the heart in exile. There's there's a truth, part of it is that knows this to be true. I guess I'm trying to work towards an idea here of saying, I mean, going out and being in that space for as long as you did, do you have any insights as to why we may be disconnected from this in, this inner truth or this inner knowing with the lifestyles that we mm. uh, participate in? Yeah, <clears throat> yes. I mean, the way I... Have, the way I kind of understand what we're really missing at the kind of deepest level in our culture, um, what we're missing in terms of of how people move through stages of human development such that they know who they are and what they're here to offer and they feel a sense of purpose and they feel a sense of connection. Um, and I feel like we're, we're missing those... Um, periods of transition to like the initiatory stages of life for instance so broadly speaking and this is like I'm influenced by the work of Bill Plotkin whose um, work is really incredible on tracking these stages of development but we're kind of stuck in a like patho-adolescent stage of development culturally Um, which, you know, is generally focused on self and and family and security and social standing. It can also be um, eco-awakened. It can, it can also be kind of, you know, like acting for the world but still not have moved through those um, that initiatory period of life where one really deeply leaves their village, whether physically or just psycho-spiritually, and and goes on a, on a kind of wandering to find out who they really are. Um, and that is a really essential uh, period of time of one's life. And we don't have the technologies or the guides or the understanding of that need. So people aren't initiated, to kind of put it bluntly. Um, yeah. And yeah. Into initiated in terms of having gone through a, a period of deep exploration. So in a way where we are cut off, 
broadly speaking, most Westerners haven't been through that. They haven't been guided through, um, you know, a kind of cocoon-like time. And so they, they don't know what they're really here to offer. And so that is inherently deeply disconnective and doesn't allow for cultural renaissance, cultural regeneration, because people aren't, aren't creating their life from their deepest truth of who they are as an adult, who they are as an initiated adult. So, you know, it's a kind of, it's a long-term, uh, a long-term uh, need, as, you know, that's going to take a long time to, to kind of relearn those technologies of healthy human development versus the urgency of the kind of ecological crisis and that's something I don't, can't quite reconcile but all I know is that's, that's where my passion lies these days is in guiding people through um, those kind of that initiatory stage of development mm. as best I can. Can I ask, is there a biological cost to an absence of ritual and rite of passage? A biological cost? Well. Or a social? There's, I mean, there, there, there is both. Yeah. I mean, really, we're, we're living in a culture which is devoid of um, mentors and elders. You know, maybe maybe ten percent, if we're lucky, of Westerners might kind of move into initiated adulthood. Mm. Um, so we we're bereft. We have lots of elders, but not many elders. And people are looking around for mentors and elders who have mm. that sense of they know something. You can feel it in them. They can feel it in their in their presence that they've been mm. through something, and they know things. They know who they are been through a period of deep upheaval um, and come out the other side of it with, you know, with, with a knowledge of themselves. Um, and so there's a huge social and biological cost um, for staying, as a, staying young as a culture, essentially. Um, but, it, yeah, it's a, it's a task of our times. I feel like it's one of the most important tasks of our times. Mike, I'm actually curious in reflection on that with the, the boys you work with, do you see that as, as a need in them and not just intellectually but, you know, like I feel like there's a lot of young men in particular who are, who are desperate for rites of passage into manhood and who find it through unhealthy ways. Is that something you've observed in, in your work too? Brother, I'll never forget. I work in a youth prison, Claire, and um, work right. as an educator there. And um, I hadn't been there that long, and I'll never forget the day I watched Uncle Jack Charles just walk into a room of, um, you know, safe, safe to say, a bunch of, you know, rowdy, dis dysregulated young men and just watching the frequency in the room just shift just because just because Uncle Jack walked in and staff and young men just settled and it was the most incredible thing to watch everyone just stop yelling and Uncle Jack just kind of moved to a position in the room and didn't you know and just sort of stood there and all the heads just turned and before long there was a group of young men many of whom 
I later found out, not all, but a, a percentage, didn't even know who he was, but just felt this pull, just felt this shift. And then Uncle Jack just started, as he, as he described at the time, just having a yarn. But he started telling these stories and it was all about how, you know, his difficulties and his struggles and it was it was an incredible experience and I felt my own frequency shift. Like by the end of standing there, I was, you know, I, I felt lighter and I felt more grateful, which is an interesting thing to experience in a prison. Um, yeah. yeah, so Jad, it was yeah, that's what came up for me when you when you asked that because um it is interesting, and there was another quote from a thinker that says, particularly with young young men, as an example, that in a, in a landscape bereft of ritual and rite of passage, um, left left unchecked, they create their own. Holding up quoting fingers, realizing this is an audio podcast. Um, yeah, and it was very it was very telling for me. It was it was a, it was a really interesting thing to watch. And I guess the other reflection I, I would throw at you two wonderful people is that I'll never forget the day that I told most men in my environment that I was that my wife and I were pregnant. It was really weird. It wasn't so much irreverent and oh well done little brother welcome to the league of extraordinary gentlemen and come and sit down it was a whole bunch of oh you've got no idea what you're in for oh bloody hell like deeply negative yeah. and mm. i remember going like just again talk about a frequency shift like i was just pumped to share this information with these elder men in my world and yeah i made a pact with myself that given the same situation that when when my own children come to me to say the same thing it'll be like well let's have a fire and let's sit around and let's talk about how things are going to shift and things are going to move but how things are going to be wonderful so many places where ritual and pass rite of passage is absent and and i think it's really it'd be so interesting to do a sociological study and, and have a look at the impact on on society yeah. working in a youth prison i just just taking my hat off to you what amazing pioneering work well like hard work i mean you want to talk about an, an exhibition in dealing with post-colonialism that's a whole nother episode like it's a tricky environment but um the greatest responses from from children you know kids young men that i've seen is you know through people like uncle jack and through through that word that you said that starts with M and ends with entoring, Claire, mentoring, mm -hmm. as opposed to whatever the sociological equivalent of mansplaining is. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to ask you, Claire, what does mentoring look like for you? And has that shifted over the years with uh, an awareness of self-compassion? Yeah, mentoring is such a yeah multi-used word in lots of different ways and um i do call my one-on-one -on -one work mentoring and guiding um even though i am a trained counselor i prefer yeah i prefer to work with people on a kind of mentoring basis um it certainly can involve therapy what we know of kind of traditional psychotherapy definitely but it um it's wider than that you know sometimes i can be you know really challenging 
And it's, it's, it's really seeing the person through that lens of healthy human development. So mm. in some ways um, psychotherapy doesn't have any agenda. It's just whatever people bring and they're just kind of working with the moment-to-moment experience. Um, but sometimes I have an agenda of, you know, of um, I can see what I feel like is a blind spot or an opportunity and I want to help people, you know, step through those hoops or give them particular invitations that, um, you know, that might actually stir the pot a bit more rather than make things kind of better if that's what they're ready for, you know, and that's it's kind of like uh, tracking where people are at in their development so that I know or have some idea of whether they need like more holing work, like working on, you know, their wholeness, cultivating wholeness, or whether it's more healing work, like wound work and trauma work, or whether they're really kind of knocking on the door of that initiatory stage of development and um, they kind of needs like some prodding and some um, and some kind of really deeply stirring invitations and suggestions that will kind of like catapult them into the, the developmental stage that is actually very uncomfortable oftentimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, mentoring, its very basis is, it's, you know, it's that wit- loving witness of witnessing the passions over time and tracking, tracking what the kind of gestalt is, what the patterns are over time. And, yeah, for me and my training, it's, it's very much around what does this person need in order to further their, further their movement around that cycle of a healthy human life. That's so fascinating, Claire. Do you do you see a, like perhaps a glaring kind of limitation of contemporary therapy models is this just complete? Uh, there's no acknowledgement really of the ecological self mm-hmm. and and of things like culture and ritual. Yeah. There's you know a lot of attention paid to family of origin and you know mum and dad are kind of blamed for everything and the sort of classical kind of psychodynamic approach and. And then there's just sort of the the excessive focus on the internal mechanics in 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 contemporary like CBT and ACT and those sorts of things, all of which are wonderful, and I use myself as a therapist. But yeah, I'm interested in your thoughts on on the fact that it's just it's absent. I feel in in discussion is the fact that we're a domesticated animal now, and it's almost seen as being. I know when I've had conversations with my therapist about a connection to land or space, he's almost kind of dismissed it as being a kind of a defence mechanism or something or a misplaced attachment. Or escapism I've had before. Yes, yes, it's a schizoidal escape into and. um, but I, I mean that that doesn't that doesn't speak to me on a you know heart level or soul level. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, great question. Realize you're a therapist. yeah, I mean, psychotherapy on a, is is really on a on a spectrum of how inclusive they are, really, of the transpersonal, um, including the more than human world, our response to um, what's happening outside our own systems. And yeah, I think traditional psychotherapy and definitely psychology is is very much focused on the box of the individual mm. to the detriment of the um, possibilities that exist outside of that. So when someone's really, you know, having a lot of eco grief, which is a very healthy response to what's happening in the world, like climate grief or fear or concern, 
that can often be, yeah, dismissed as kind of a projection of childhood wounding or whatever it is mm. as an example. Um, but there is a missed opportunity there to really include the kind of broader human community and earth community um, and our responses to that in the therapy room, but also recognising that, you know, one of the, I think one of the problems with even though good psychotherapy and I love my therapist and he was amazing today, but um, good, like good psychotherapy um, it includes sometimes there needs to be periods of upheaval, like not to kind of just help people adapt to an unhealthy culture. You know, that's that's mm. the shadow side of psychotherapy. Let's just kind of shore things up and pack things down so that you can adapt better to this really unhealthy culture. Whereas more radical psychotherapy and kind of eco-psychology or eco-psychotherapy really questions um, the premise of health and well-being and what we're actually adapting ourselves to, you know, like mm. questions Again, those healthy psychotherapy really question the beliefs, judgments that hold us in that box of like we've got to fit into this unhealthy culture and draws us out of that and actually helps us see that, oh, we're having this really like, you know, depression, for instance, or, or even chronic fatigue. Like is that a kind of response to the body just doesn't, you know, doesn't want to play in this really unhealthy field anymore? There's something more alive out there possible. It's interesting because what's coming up for me when you're saying that, Claire, is that th these ecological sort of viewpoints uh, challenge a very Eurocentric or Western perspective of the traditional psychological landscape. If we just were to look in a crystal ball, where do you see the integration of your experiences influencing or potentially influencing therapeutic processes mm. yeah well I guess that's where my my study and my passion lies in these um you know tracking tracking stages of of human development coming back to that and really feeling the opportunity if if that was um part of kind of psychotherapy's education if that mm. was included as as one of the layers you know, one of the lenses to encounter someone's experience, you know, then I feel like there's opportunity for really uh, radical shifts in the model. Um, and, yeah, where, where I feel like I can kind of um, where I want to bring my the melding of my kind of therapeutic work with the kind of radical change, rewilding work. Um, but also something that mentoring offers is it's not necessarily limited to the room. Uh, so sometimes we're outside, sometimes we're, um, you know, um, guiding them through some kind of ceremony by the fire or by the river. Um, and also it can include group experience, group workshops. So it's not this kind of siloed experience one-on-one, -on -one, but it, it can include other ways of interacting with each other and, and with groups where I'm also present. So, for instance, I guide Vision Quests, which is a solo fast out in the forest. And so, you know, it's incredibly valuable if I've been working with someone for a while and then, you know, work with them in a group setting in that kind of ceremonial way and then help their integration rather than a kind of psychotherapeutic model, which is like you just you wouldn't look at your client if you bumped into them into the street. It feels a bit more um, holistic to me. 
So, person in environment sort of viewpoint rather than just person in your office. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Hey, just just as a side question, I'm super, super curious. What's it like for you when you just rock into the middle of the CBD? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just so curious. Um, like- well, you know, I live in Melbourne, even though I'm in a very, very green pocket that feels like I'm out in the bush. Um, yep. Oh, look, it's all a bit of a buzz. It's all a bit of a, you know, I, I love shifting, you know, shifting personas and, and being a bit of a chameleon and jumping into different environments and, um, you know, I kind of find the, the curiosity wherever I go. I wouldn't want to stay there very long, but um, it's, just another, it's just another landscape. <laughs> Could you do a year in the CBD, like camping in some park? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd decline that offer. However, I did just hear that there's people doing vision quests in in New York City, which wow, that's that'd be a thing. <laughs> I'm like intrigued, and also my like cynical monitor is yeah. going off. It's like you know the the office executive doing ayahuasca in, a, right. in a, an apartment in New yeah. York. Is <laughs> exactly yeah. How yeah. how far removed from the original uh, kind of ceremony can you get how mm. what what actually happens it's a good way to fill up your bath with uh body fluids pretty quickly in an apartment <laughs> <laughs> we should um jan have we asked any of the standard questions which you so eloquently designed when we talk we- about this podcast <laughs> and then i never <laughs> asked them i'm so sorry <laughs> Well, I mean, we've we've devolved through a number of the kind of topics that we typically cover in the podcast. Did you say on. devolved? Devolved. Uh. Devolved. So my, now I'm questioning the word. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we have we've discussed a lot of kind of the well, the, your experience of kind of you know resistance and stuff in the in the um the the natural world or when you were in, in the forest and. But I guess steering back onto some of the, the the topics we were going to cover, what are some of the skill sets you've sort of employed? Some of which you've mentioned, you know, vision quests and and bird song and tracking and whatnot. And I guess what do you want to share with others about those skills? Like how how do you sort of use that um, in your in the work that you do as well? Um, what's something someone can kind of take home from this um, this podcast? Yeah, good question. I mean that. Uh- it, it feels like quite a diverse toolkit that I employ in different situations. Yes, there's definitely the there's earth skills, you know, the kind of wilderness survival skills, which is just such a core love of mine. And then there's the kind of more nature observation and awareness, like so building ecological literacy and building a sense of belonging and, and connection to place. Um, and then there's the more kind of soul-centric practices like vision quest, self-design ceremony, um, dream work, kind of the melding of depth depth psychology and nature-based practice. Um, in terms of what someone could take home, um, I mean, quite simply, there's a practice that I recommend to everyone, which is um, the art of wild wandering. And it's so simple because it can be anywhere. It can be in the suburbs. But, you know, we're so intent usually on, on the exercise walk of A to B, um, but opening up the kind of imagination and the sense of like a timeless time. And it's, it's literally just heading outside and 
wandering using, you know, using your kind of body radar or intuition to, to kind of guide you where you where you go and really being open to like encountering the world as if it was a dream landscape. So really opening mm. up that kind of imaginative quality of like, what am I going to come across and what conversations are possible here and what's, um, yeah, what's the land mirroring back to me and what am I offering the land? Um, and just, just that act of wandering without a destination is really quite stirring for the imagination. It's stir, it's, it strengthens that muscle of, of intuition, inner guidance, um, and it can be done anywhere. And it's fun and it's enlivening um, and it will build the uh, quality of curiosity, which is inherently joyful. And so, yeah, head out on a wild wander and see what, you know, what stirs you, what allures you or repels you um, and really being open to the emotional kind of quality of that. Mm. I love that. When we never wander. Really? It's always just destination oriented, oh. nothing nothing about the journey. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Well, I hope to hear of your wild wandering stories. I'm going now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nighttime wanders even better. Oh yeah. <clears throat> love that. I love that. I love a nighttime wander. I love a winter wander. I'm a, I'm down the beach in the Bunarung Peninsula, so I love just uh yeah, cruising along and um, stars and all that sort of stuff. It's uh, so many things we just don't do because we're addicted to comfort. Will, will you come back and chat with us another time, Claire? Because there's so many things that have become emergent from this discussion that I would love to explore further. I would love to prod the concept of our addiction to comfort, mm-hmm. our addiction to being biologically or homeo- homeostatically beige. Yes, it sounds like we could some stories there well i'm going to commit to, to heading outside and standing in my bare feet on the on the wet grass right now and uh yep so- soaking in a little bit of discomfort yes yes wim wim hof salutes you i <laughs> did actually dive in a cold body of water today i was very pleased with myself yeah don't get me started on that stuff i haven't had a hot shower in two or three years oh, it's, wow. it's the bomb, but seriously, please, will you come back at some point? Because we I, must, we must pontificate further. Claire, be, before we do sign off, you've been very uh, gracious with giving up your time for tonight. Is there anything you want to kind of uh, uh, talk about coming up, like a book coming out or anything? Oh yeah, nice, uh, nice Dorothy Dixer question there. I had actually forgotten, but yes, I really should plug my new book, which is called. <laughs> rewilding the urban soul searching for the wild in the city and yeah it's about the experiment of my last kind of four years living in melbourne trying to find a way to stay wild and to hunt the wild if you like while living in the urban matrix and it's coming out on june 1st and everyone listening at home reach underneath your chair because you're going home with a copy <laughs> you get a copy. Um, what a what a really interesting but uh, incredibly logical next thing to write. Which I think the official term for that is a sequel. It was meant to be a sequel. It was it was going to be like much earlier on than than uh, you know. It's it's kind of coming out five years later than I imagined. But hey, it's a sequel. 
We'll call it a sequel. <laughs> awesome. I cannot wait to read it. You might actually see I just got tickets to to your oh, book yeah. launch. So I'm going to be the total nerd fanboy that asked for for an autograph of my copy, I think. Oh, okay. <laughs> Pleasure. Yeah, I'll buy some new, new pens for the occasion. <laughs> well, thank you again, Claire, so much for being on the show. I'd love to maybe discuss the new book once we've both had a chance to read it and have you back again. Uh, I think we'll we'll end the, the talk for tonight at there and everybody have a, a great evening or morning or whenever you're listening to this and we uh, you can find us on all the social media platforms at The Kind Mess Podcast. Thanks, everyone. See you later. Thanks, Claire. Thank you. Thank you.